Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Wajat Ali, a Daily Beast columnist and author who discusses the political violence embraced by today's Republican Party and white Christian nationalism, the ideology behind the January 6th insurrection. Alexander Maine, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who talks about the historic election of Gustavo Petro as Colombia's first leftist president. And Eric Sorensen, a retired TV meteorologist, now an Illinois congressional candidate, who explains his campaign's emphasis on addressing the climate crisis. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. When Russia invaded Ukraine earlier this year, threatening that nation's urgently needed export of wheat to the rest of the world, India, one of the world's top grain exporters, was seen as a global buffer that could make up for the shortfall. But this spring's erratic rains and scorching heat killed much of India's crops, dramatically decreasing India's grain production. To help prevent famine at home in May, New Delhi responded by announcing it would shut down all grain exports. This action would have the effect of contributing to hunger abroad. As of last week, about 750,000 people around the world were facing a food security catastrophe, according to the Food and Agriculture Organization, the U.N. agency tasked with fighting global hunger. The Washington Post reports that U.N. agencies now estimate that about 49 million are at risk of falling into famine conditions in the months ahead. While the war in Ukraine and climate change are major contributing factors to rising food insecurity, other obstacles such as supply chain disruptions and economic instability linked to the coronavirus pandemic have raised the cost of fuel, fertilizer, and shipping. Without humanitarian interventions, experts project that even more people could fall into famine by the end of the year. While most Southeast Asian nations continue to rely on dirty fossil fuels to power their economies, Vietnam is a bright spot in embracing solar energy. Since 2017, the share of electricity generated by solar in Vietnam increased from virtually zero to nearly 11%. Not only was Vietnam's increase in the use of solar power faster than anywhere else in the world, it is a greater share than larger economies such as France or Japan. Vietnam's Prime Minister, Pham Minh Chin, pledged last November to stop building new coal-powered energy plants and reduce his country's emissions to net zero by 2050. But The Economist reports that demand for energy in the country has grown by about 10% annually over the past decade, forcing the government to turn to coal to generate a portion of its electricity. In 2017, the government began paying solar power suppliers a fixed-rate fee of as much as 9.35 cents for every kilowatt-hour they delivered to the grid, which was generous given that costs typically range between 5 and 7 cents per kilowatt-hour. 
The result is that 100,000 rooftop solar panels were installed in 2019 and 2020, increasing the country's solar capacity by a whopping 16 gigawatts. Other Southeast Asian nations that have tried that same approach have been less successful. In the early days of private equity in the 1970s, the leveraged buyout was king. An early example is Hoodale Industries, a cash-rich machines tool company seen as a likely target for a hostile takeover. The investment bank KKR, Kohlberg, Kravitz & Roberts, convinced the CEO, Jerry Saltarelli, to go private. But the deal backfired as the machine tool industry sank and the company choked on its debt. Soon afterward, KKR laid off 2,200 workers. Mother Jones Magazine reports that over the last 40 years, private equity has exploded, buying up companies from dental offices to international call centers. In 2020, private equity had $7.3 trillion in assets, the value of Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, and Tesla combined. One out of every 14 gets a paycheck from a company run by private equity. Private equity emerged in an era when corporations were no longer judged by what they made, but how they maximized profits for investors. Companies became bundles of assets to be bought, sold, and manipulated for financial gain. With the power of labor in decline during the Reagan years, the kings of private equity, KKR, Blackstone, and the Carlyle Group, negotiated megadeals that cost thousands of jobs for hefty management fees and carried interest. Over the last decade, private equity firms have taken over 80 major retailers, leading to the loss of 1.3 million jobs. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. The House Select Committee, investigating the January 6th insurrection and Donald Trump's failed coup attempt, held its fourth public hearing on June 21st, which focused on the pressure exerted by Trump and his lawyers on election officials to overturn Joe Biden's election victory. Multiple state and local election officials spoke about the intense harassment and protests targeting them in the aftermath of the election. Shea Moss, an election worker in Fulton County, Georgia, and her mother, Ruby Freeman, were the target of Trump's false allegation that they were colluding to commit voter fraud. The two black women then received hundreds of death threats, and white supremacists attempted to break into their home, forcing the mother and daughter to leave their house for two months. Republican officials, including Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffsenberger and Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers, recounted the death threats they and their families received after refusing to submit to Trump's demand to subvert their state's election results. Hundreds more officials received similar threats of violence from Trump supporters across the country. Your reporter spoke with Wajat Ali, a Daily Beast columnist and author, who discusses the political violence embraced by today's Republican Party in his recent article titled Name and shame white Christian nationalism, the ideology behind January 6th. 
Christian nationalism is uh, the theory uh, or the ideology, for those who don't know, that America is a special nation, divinely favored by God, but entrusted to white Christian men, there's a patriarchy at place here, as its sovereign protector. And it is the duty of these men, these white Christian men, to implement and spread the kingdom of heaven on earth. And as such, this goal, this ideology, this righteous celestial mission is under threat and under attack, active attack, by invaders. And those invaders include feminists, gays, Jews, people of color, Muslims, immigrants, and basically anyone who opposes their proposed theocratic state. And scholars of Christian nationalism came out with this big study that if it was any other group, it would have been mainstream news, but it wasn't, in February, that said that one of the major drivers of the January 6th violent insurrection, this part, this ongoing coup, as you said, was white Christian nationalism. The slogans, the, the mantras, the symbols, it was all there. It's all present. And you're seeing now, I gave you a name, but there's several other names, but D- Doug Mastriano, the man who overwhelmingly won the Republican gubernatorial primary for Pennsylvania, open Christian nationalist, right? <laughs> Openly espousing this rhetoric. And now you see that merge with QAnon and the replacement theory, these very dangerous conspiracy theories, and you're hearing these terminologies. The Democrats and liberals uh, wear the mark of the beast, right? This type of Christian nationalist rhetoric that apparently we are part of this international cabal, Satan worshipers, evil men and women who are trying to indoctrinate and, and kill their children. And so if you truly believe that you are, to quote the Blues Brothers, on a mission from God, and that the rest of us are evil, literally evil, Satan worshipers or wearing the mark of the beast who are coming after your kids, will you then not use violence, Scott, to protect your children, your faith, and your country? And the answer, if you look at the polls, and I know you do this show and you've talked about this, is yes, which is why we're seeing a huge, it's not a small minority, a large minority, up to a third of Republicans, who are fine with using violence to take back their country from us, the invaders and the evildoers. It's a dangerous time we're living in. I share with many people in our audience a frustration that the Democrats' response to this violent, fascist threat from a large majority of what we see in the Republican Party today is fairly tepid. You don't have an aggressive pushback against these anti-democratic activists in the Republican Party, and they seem to come equipped with a pillow to a gunfight. They seem to have no message to counter the constant barrage of violent threats coming from the Republican Party activists. Where does this Democratic Party need to go, in your view? Yeah, I agree with you. They're not built for this fight. They're not made for this moment. They're just not. And unfortunately, I think a large part of it is you have a lot of wealthy white men and women who are part and parcel of a romanticized institution from halcyon days, and they think they can just drink rum and smoke cigars and be buddy buddies with these folk people, right? Like when Joe Biden is calling these folks rational actors, and they're calling Joe Biden a pedophile. <laughs> it's like I, it's like the analogy I give is like Charlie Brown and Lucy. Mm-hmm. All right, Lucy, you won't lift the football this time, will you? And Lucy goes, nope. And then what happens? She lifts the football and Charlie Brown falls on his ass. That is my analogy for every single institution in America. And if you're a student of history, you know that usually corporations and major institutions kind of uh, uh, always, if you will, line the road 
to fascism, right? They always befriend the fascists and think they can accommodate them and think they can win them over and think they can pacify them. And then what happens? The fascist always takes over and crushes them. And so I feel like that is the, the makeup of the Democratic Party right now is that hey, you have these young bucks who are seen as radicals who are completely ignored by the establishment who oftentimes play by these old rules and have, you know, who court the moderates and the white vote that has since ab- long since abandoned them for like 50 years. And what they need to do is they need, they need to friggin' put on their brass knuckles and fight. You have to punch a bully in the mouth. That doesn't mean you give up your ethics, your values, your morals, but you have to first and foremost name the threat. Call them out for extremists, fascists, traitors. Then use your majority and flex your power. Example, these hearings. Use the bully pulpit almost like Trump did, like, you know, Biden can. When Biden fights back and Democrats fight back, look what happens. People rise up. I'll give you one quick example. I know we're running out of time. When Mallory McMurrow, I believe that's her name, took her four and a half minutes on TV to fight back against these atrocious claims that she was a pedophile, what happened? Massive groundswell, huge respect. She got money. People are like, yeah. When Elizabeth Warren got out and, like, you know, raised hell when it, when we read the draft leaked opinion of Alito overturning, what happened? People are like, yeah. When this guy in Pennsylvania, John Fetterman, is, you know, raising hell against MAGA, he has a nine-point lead on Amendment Oz. Mm. What do people want? Yeah. They want fire. They want passion. And if you give them that passion, you give them that fight, you will win over the base and the majority. I hope, I hope, I hope the DNC recognizes it. I don't think they do. That was Washat Ali, a Daily Beast columnist and author of the book, Go Back to Where You Came From, and other helpful recommendations on becoming American. Find more analysis and commentary on the Republican Party's embrace of political violence in a link to Wajat's recent articles by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. In the historic final round of Colombia's June 19th presidential election, voters elected Gustavo Petro to be the South American nation's first leftist head of state. Petro is a former militant in the now demobilized M-19 guerrilla army who went on to be elected mayor of Bogota and a senator. In another breakthrough, Petro's running mate, human rights and environmental activist Francia Marquez, was elected to be the nation's first Afro-Colombian vice president. Petro and Marquez defeated millionaire Rodolfo Hernandez, an independent right-wing candidate who campaigned against corruption. After decades of civil conflict, a violent drug war, and suffocating poverty and inequality, Petro has pledged to radically reprioritize Colombia's economy. His agenda includes taxing unproductive land, providing free university education, demilitarizing the drug war, and freezing new oil and gas projects to address the climate crisis. Your reporter spoke with Alexander Maine, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, who talks about the dangers threatening Petro when he takes office on August 7th, and obstacles standing in the way of his effort to enact his ambitious agenda. We can't be sure of anything, frankly, until uh, the inauguration takes place on August 7th, uh, because uh, there is a history of candidates being uh, assassinated, including candidates that won uh, the presidential election, um, which took place in the 1950s in in Colombia. You had uh, Jorge Gaitan, who was assassinated shortly after being elected. 
and uh, and then you've had you know popular candidates that have been assassinated since then. Uh, so needless to say, uh, they've had a very significant security detail, both Gustavo Petro and the vice presidential candidate, uh, Francia Marquez, both of whom have received numerous death threats, uh, including from paramilitary groups in Colombia uh, that are still quite active. You know, Petro is really a very significant symbol um, in that he comes from the insurgency in Colombia. You had a good part of the left that went underground and decided to take up arms, uh, feeling that the political system essentially locked them out and also um, maintained a system of oppression against um, broad uh, swath of the Colombian population, particularly the marginalized communities of indigenous and Afro-Colombians in the west of the country, in the south of the country. Yes, Petro... um, was someone who was demonized by the media, by, of course, the conservative politicians that ran the country for years, seen as, you know, someone who was dangerous, uh, who was going to try to impose a strict form of communism in the country. All sorts of scare tactics were applied. And in previous elections, I think they've had an impact. But in this election, interestingly, really the electorate turned against the political class almost in its entirety by voting um, in the first round for Petro, and then the runner-up was Rodolfo Hernandez. Uh, Both of them sort of outsiders, people that were very critical of the political establishment in uh, Colombia, Uh, but they got a huge percentage of the vote, and they went to the runoff election. Um, And ultimately, Gustavo Petro and Francia Marquez won um, by three points. Uh, So not a huge margin, but um, significant nonetheless. And it looks like, you know, they really won thanks to the massive mobilization of the sort of peripheries of Colombia, the parts of Colombia where you have the Afro-Colombians and the indigenous and people that have sort of been disenfranchised traditionally in the politics of the country and the economics of the country, they uh, turned out um, in unprecedented numbers. And I think that's really what ensured the victory of Gustavo Petro. In addition to hostility from the military and the threat of right-wing death squads, uh, Gustavo Petro does not have a majority in Colombia's legislative branch, So he's facing many challenges ahead. Is there a popular movement supporting Petro's agenda that can be mobilized to to really push the country in a new direction? Well, I think he's counting on that because, indeed, his coalition, the Pacto Histórico, has about a third of the seats in the Colombian Congress, and, and that's not enough, obviously, to pass legislation. He would need to have the support of the centrists and perhaps even some of the right-wing legislators. Based on the speech that he gave last night, I think he really wants to mobilize the public in support of his agenda, You know, one that's focused on diminishing the enormous poverty that exists in Colombia, the very high level of inequality. It's one of the countries with the highest levels of inequality in the world. You know, in order to do that, he needs to carry out a set of very significant reforms. Yes, he's made an appeal to the public. He wants to dialogue with everyone. 
in order to support this agenda, there's clearly enormous dissatisfaction within the population in Colombia with the status quo. And uh, he's made it clear that, you know, he wants to carry out significant change, but he'll need, you know, public support for that. That's the only way he's going to be able to move some of these other parties into forming alliances with him behind the essential legislation that he'll need to carry through with his agenda. That was Alexander Maine, Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Find more commentary on Gustavo Petro's election as Colombia's first leftist president by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Eric Sorensen was a TV meteorologist for 22 years in his hometown of Rockford, Illinois, when the Democratic congresswoman in Illinois District 17, Sherry Bustos, announced her retirement after 10 years in office. Voters there picked Donald Trump twice for president, making it a textbook example of a swing district. Sorensen then decided to retire from his TV weatherman job and run for the now open seat emphasizing his role as a climate science communicator. A week before the June 28th primary, when our interview was conducted, Sorensen was seven points ahead of his nearest Democratic competitor in a field of six candidates. Meanwhile, Esther Joy King, an Army Judge Advocate General Officer, and Trump supporter Charlie Helmick are vying for the district's Republican nomination. Between the lines, Melinda Tuhu spoke with Sorensen about his decision to run for Congress and how he's approaching the issue of climate change in his campaign. I took that risk 15 years ago now of talking about climate change on TV when no one else was. And the reason I did it is because, um, to be quite honest, there was not much climate in the curriculum for the atmospheric science degree. Uh, But here was the thing. I learned about it. It was up to me as the meteorologist to learn. And as I learned, I was compelled to tell my to tell the story um, to the viewers because we were getting the tornadoes in January. We were getting the the 500 year floods to happen year after year. And so I was just connecting people with what they were seeing out their window to this big thing about climate change that people thought was just the polar bear. And, and I was connecting it to local events and to be able to say that, you know, especially in an agricultural area that, you know what, your livelihood depends on how we react to this. And, and I heard back from conservatives and, and, uh, and progressives that both said the same thing. Thanks, Eric, for talking about this, keeping the opinion and your politics out, but you're focused on the science and we trust you for the science. And that's the key right there. And so after all of this time working here for 20 years in this district, when my congresswoman said that she was retiring, um, I thought, here we are, hopefully at the tail end of a pandemic, in a, in a world where we need more science and better science communication. It needs to happen right here in my home. And that's why I'm running for Congress. I have heard 
that there's some effort, and I don't even know who's behind it, to try to get meteorologists to talk about climate. It's like some organized thing. Do you know anything about that? Yes, I was one of the very first meteorologists to be a part of the program. It was called Climate Matters in the Newsroom. Now it is Climate Central. Um, and now I believe there are 700 meteorologists in the country that focus on within the broadcast or whether it is online, it is localized to people's geographical areas. Um, and that was one of the things that early on we meteorologists said the, the way that we were going to connect people with meteorology um, was going to be through what the people were seeing out their windows. How much does you know, your elevator pitch with the voters, how much do you talk about climate or, you know, is it one of many things, you know, that people, you think people will be concerned about that you talk about? Well, certainly, uh, I mean, front and center today, um, it is, you know, it's inflation. I mean, that's, that's the elephant that's in the room. Um, and we have to make sure that um, our government is working to solve these problems. And it's, you know, it's much like climate change. There's no silver bullet. But when I talk with people here in this district, we can have, and we do have really great conversations about climate, you know, especially in the agricultural community. When I was getting my petitions signed to even get on the ballot, um, I was in one of the smaller towns in Western Illinois, Kiwani, and a gentleman and his wife were coming up to me and I said, hi, I'm Eric Sorensen. I'm the weather guy from Channel 8. I'm now running for Congress. Would you sign my petition? And the guy said, oh yeah, Eric, sure, sure. And the pen went down to the paper and he, he said, well, you're running as a Democrat. Eric, I, I, I'm a Republican. I don't know if I can do this. And I said, well, that's all right. I said, so what do you do for a living? And he said, well, I'm a farmer. I, you know, we, we've got about 500 acres up by Prophetstown. I said, that's great. Uh, he's third generation farmer. And I said, well, you've got to see how the climate is changing where you are, where we get four, five inches of rain in an hour out of a storm in the summertime, but then it doesn't rain for 20 days. And that affects your livelihood um, because you're having to, to juggle drought and flash flood. And he said, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, there's no way that you can deny this anymore, but Eric, I just don't know what we're supposed to do about it. Um, and that's when I said, well, that should be my job. My job will be to go to Congress, be the first meteorologist in nearly 50 years and find some of the solutions. I believed instead of there being a silver bullet for climate change, there's just silver buckshot. We've, there's going to be so many different decisions that need to be made. I want to be able to help you make that decision. And I want to come back to your farm and talk with my Republican friend about the solutions. So as he was signing my petition, I looked up at his wife and she gave me that smile. She didn't even have to say anything, but she gave me that smile that said, congratulations for breaking through the outer shell of my husband. And that's how we're going to win talking about climate in middle America. That was Eric Sorensen, a retired TV meteorologist and congressional candidate in Illinois' 17th Congressional District. Learn more about Sorensen's campaign and his messaging on the climate crisis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been 
listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WLXU in Lexington, Kentucky, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. Scott Harris.